0: SECTION 26 OF CANADA, SOUTH AMERICA, CENTRAL AMERICA, MEXICO, AND WEST INDIES. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. THE WORLD STORY, VOLUME 11. CANADA, SOUTH AMERICA, CENTRAL AMERICA, MEXICO, AND THE WEST INDIES. EDITED BY AVA MARCH Tappan. Section 26, Loyalist Shelburne, 1783, by Daniel Owen. The story of the growth and decay of Shelburne, Nova Scotia, that Loyalist haven of refuge, is as romantic as it is fascinating and dates back to that memorable day in October 1781 when Lord Cornwallis and his army of 7,000 men surrendered to Washington. At that time, there were many wealthy families living in New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore, who were still loyal to the British Crown, and had no desire to live in the Republic, which all realized must follow the surrender of Cornwallis. They knew that to remain in the United States, possessing as they did British sympathies, meant confiscation of all their property and imprisonment for themselves until they should be willing to renounce their allegiance to the flag of England and subscribe to the constitution of the new Republic. This they were resolved never to do, and they therefore decided to immigrate to some other part of the empire. Accordingly, meetings were held in the three cities to discuss ways and means. From these towns went representatives who formed a union committee, with full power to decide upon the new home for the Loyalists, whom they represented. Before this committee appeared, one Gideon White of Plymouth, Massachusetts, who, possessing a personal knowledge of Shelburne, strongly advocated the advisability of immigrating to that place. Impressed by the claims of Shelburne, which were so ably presented by White, the Committee, after long and heated debate which at one time threatened to dissolve the meeting, and also the Committee itself, decided that on the south shore of the Province of Nova Scotia, the Loyalists of the three premier cities of America, should seek safety from the imminent persecutions of a victorious enemy. The next step was to take the matter up with the imperial government, which, through a lieutenant governor, controlled Nova Scotia. For this purpose, a committee consisting of seven members were appointed. Joseph Durfee of Newport, Rhode Island, James Doyle of Albany, New York, Peter Lynch and Joseph Courtney of Boston, William Hill, Joseph Ponchon, and Joshua Pell. The imperial government gave the intending settlers every possible encouragement and inducement. It promised them large grants of land. Every family was to have a town lot measuring 60 by 100 feet, a water lot on the harbor, and a 50-acre farm back of the town. In addition, the refugees were promised free lumber with which to build and food as long as it should be necessary. As soon as all the arrangements were completed... The exodus began. Palatial residences were taken apart and placed on ships, which were to carry them to Shelburne. They were again to be erected in all their grandeur and dignity. The new settlers, men and women of noble family, the elite of three great cities, to the number of five thousand, arrived in twenty ships, bringing with them all their worldly possessions. These were followed by 6,000 more in the following September. With surprising rapidity, the new settlement took shape. The town was laid out perfectly, like a city, the plans having been prepared in New York, and to this day may be seen the ruined mansions, built over as large an area as that on which many a city of 30,000 souls now stands. But alas, Shelburne today is inhabited by less than a thousand people. Seven million dollars was spent in modeling and improving the town. Beautiful gardens were laid out, fronting on graceful boulevards. Stately buildings were erected with magnificent appointments, all forming a fitting setting for the wealth and aristocracy that made up the population of Shelburne. It was at this juncture that the citizens received from His Majesty George III of England a gift to which the citizens of the Shelburne of the present day point to, with the utmost pride, to wit, one fire engine. But what a fire engine! It came with the king's compliments, to protect the property of those who had remained loyal to his crown and person, and with the assurance that it was the most modern and very latest thing in firefighting appliances. It was necessary to first carry the water in buckets to the tub, and then pump it out again to quench the flames." Ere long, romance gave way to stern reality, and soon the new settlers realized that the founding of a city in the rocky forest was not as easy as it had been represented. Another has graphically described the tragic ending of that loyalist haven, that I will let him tell the pathetic story, in part at least. They built their homes in New York, and brought them with them, houses of oak that would stand for centuries with stairways of mahogany and mantles of marble. They brought their slaves with them to do their work, and they furnished their mansions in a style fitted to their station. When Governor Parr sailed a year later from Halifax to visit the new city, they had already extended upon it nearly three million dollars, a trivial sum now, but lavish in those days, and they entertained the governor right royally, And they changed the name of the capital from New Jerusalem, which they had first called it, to Shelburne, in honor of England's prime minister. Prince Edward, the father of Queen Victoria, also visited the famous seaports on the south shore, and the whole city came forth to do him honor. Never before was there so gay a metropolis. They dined and feasted. No one worked, for no one knew how to work. And why should they work? The English government furnished all their supplies. The neighbors in Yarmouth and Barrington and Lockport, hard-working seafaring men from Massachusetts, looked upon the newcomers with amazement, and contemptuously styled them the dancing beggars. But the day of reckoning came. The government supplies were cut off, and the gay capital began to grow hungry. They would not fish, and they would not trade in furs. These occupations were beneath them, and it was not a farming country, and so they starved. Famine followed feasting. Lamentations took the place of mirth. They had houses, palatial houses, but these, unfortunately, were not edible, and so they began to desert and scatter. Some turned back to the states. Some went to the neighboring towns. One after another, they gathered their movable possessions and turned their backs upon the new Jerusalem, and their stately mansions with mahogany balustrades and marble mantles were left for the birds to build their nests in. Never did a city rise so grandly and fall so miserably. The fourteen thousand soon became a beggarly four hundred. Boys wandered through the streets and amused themselves with stoning out the windows, with no one to chide them, for there were windows to spare. Some of the houses were torn down and carried away to other towns to build again, and others of these stately mansions, brought from the States at so great expense, were pulled down and used for firewood. Is there another city on the North American continent with such a history? Is there another whose story is so unique and fascinating? When the settlers left Shelburne, many of their slaves remained behind, some from choice, the majority because the empty purses of their masters forbade their removal. These, with the addition of 3,000 or more free slaves, who had from time to time immigrated from New York to Birchtown, a small settlement two miles from Shelburne, formed a colony of almost 5,000 souls, and their subsequent history is deeply interesting. Slavery was prevalent in Nova Scotia in those days, and the whites of the province had attacked many of the blacks who, it may be mentioned, were not always treated with kindness, but were, on the other hand, too often little better than Beasts of Burden. Wilberforce and Clarkson, the great English reformers, heard of the ill-treatment of the Negroes in Nova Scotia, and determined to remove them to the Negro colony that was in process of building in Sierra Leone. To this end, John Clarkson, brother of the reformer Thomas Clarkson, came to Nova Scotia, made arrangements with the owners of the slaves and personally superintended the deportation. No persuasion or force was used. Those who went, went voluntarily. The main inducement held out to them was the promise of being allowed to form a state of their own with their own officials selected from amongst their own number. This so appealed to their sense of importance that practically every man of them joined the expedition. And in 1792, 1,200 Negroes left Shelburne for Sierra Leone, and more followed later. Each married man received 30 acres of land, and each male child 15 acres in the new African settlement. They were provided with free passage, and also with provisions on their arrival and until they were able to provide for themselves. After that, they were provided with provisions, and the products of their plantations were taken as pay. Of the result of the experiment, a local historian has said, In their new homes, some of these Negroes remained steady and peaceable, and welcomed the arrival, some years later, of an English Methodist missionary. But the majority became so unruly and violent that they endangered the existence of the settlement, and even attempted the murder of the governor. So difficult was the task of keeping them in order, that when, eight years later, the managers of the colony were asked to receive the Maroons, also from Nova Scotia, they only consented the hope that the one race would prove a counterpoise to the other. The Shelburne up today still shows the result of that loyalist invasion of so many years ago, And in that beautiful little village, with its shaded streets, its stately residences, and a harbor that has no pier on the North American coast, the citizens still talk with pride of the days of the long ago and of the blood that courses through their veins. That blood of the loyalist fathers who, true to the motherland, sought peace and security on the southern shore of Nova Scotia. End of section 26.